And please turn in your Bibles now with me to Romans, or excuse me, Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. Last week we spent a little bit of time looking at the three different views on what has been called the millennium. Because in chapter 20 of Revelation, John refers to this thousand-year period. In fact, in seven verses, he mentions it six times. Now, it's the only place in the entire Bible we find this 1,000-year period referred to, and it's taken on tremendous importance in many people's thinking about the end times. Now, I told you there are basically three primary explanations or approaches to explain this, and no one understanding or explanation of these millennial views really answers every question we might ask. But I am most comfortable, I prefer, and I believe is correct, that the, uh, the, mo- the, the most satisfying, I think the most accurate, faithful interpretation is what we call uh, millennialism. Now, our eschatology is not going to fit into a neat little package because there are mysteries that God has not made clear to us yet. But I believe that our millennium is the most faithful explanation of the text. Now, just real quickly, Amil teaches that there is this thousand-year period talked about, but it's really symbolic, not literal. It describes a very long period of time, not at the very end of the church age, but actually entails the entire church age from the time Jesus went to heaven until he returns. And in this thousand-year period, the Lord Jesus is reigning over the earth but he is doing so from a throne that is not here on the earth, it's in heaven. And it talks about Jesus on his throne and the saints uh, who have, the martyrs who have been beheaded for the faith and others who have died in the Lord are on the thrones with him ruling. That's in heaven, not here on the earth. It also talks of Satan having been bound by this time. And we understand that binding, and we went through the Gospels and saw this progression of how Satan was bound by the Lord Jesus through his life, through his death, and his resurrection. He conquered sin and death. And Satan being bound doesn't mean that he cannot act or tempt or uh, cause problems. It means he cannot stop the progression of the Gospel throughout the world. The Gospel will be preached far and wide, and God will call his elect to himself. By the end of this period, however long it might be, Satan will be set free, as it were, and and allowed to deceive all the nations that they might assemble and, 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 and engage in war, one last assault, as it were, on God and on his people. That last great battle is called Armageddon. And then Jesus conquers. He comes The second coming, he conquers his enemies, casts Satan into hell, and then the great white throne judgment appears, and all appear before him, and his enemies are judged as well. So, with that in mind, I'm going to read the entire chapter that gives us those first six verses we looked at last year, and then the rest of Revelation 20 that we'll be looking at tonight. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those who, to whom authority to judge was committed. 
And I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection, the rest of the dead being those who are outside of Christ. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their numbers is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they were, will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of the fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Solemn words, but this is the word of the Lord. So we find here at the end of this 1,000-year period, which again, I believe is symbolic. It's the now age, the church, the age of the gospel, we might call it. There's one last battle. It's been called Satan's little season or Satan's uh, little time that he is released and unleashed and set free. Uh, and what he's free to do is deceive the nations and lead them to this one great last battle. Now, it's very interesting to me, this thousand years in bondage does not in any way uh, dampen Satan's determination to alter his plan or alter his plans in any way to oppose God and try to defeat Jesus and defeat the church. He can read just like you and I can read. He knows what this text says. He knows he is going to be defeated, and yet he is undeterred. He is bent on the destruction of the church. He knows it cannot happen, but he is determined to attempt to do it Anyway, that is the very nature of evil. It is insane. It is irrational. And when we throw ourselves or or, or buck up against the Word of God, and we sow to the flesh thinking somehow we can avoid reaping from the flesh corruption that God's Word promises, we are being just as irrational, just as insane. Satan knows what the outcome is going to be, and yet he, in his mind, says, I can change this. I can overcome this. He cannot, and neither can we. There's a lesson here for us, and we must take heed to it. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. The law of the harvest is inflexible. So, here we find in verse 8, Satan gathering this great powerful armies, the armies of the earth to do battle against the people of God. He calls them Gog and Magog. And these names are taken from Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. You don't need to turn there. But remember, so much of Revelation harkens back to Old Testament prophecy. 
And in Ezekiel 38 and 39, Ezekiel is telling about, uh, is prophesying about the destruction that will be carried out by the Greeks under the king Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, Epiphanes. Uh, and, and, and Antiochus led his armies into Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. They, uh, they defiled the temple. They, they, were, they sacrificed pigs on the altar, knowing that that was the worst thing you could possibly do. Uh, and it was a brutal conquest of Israel. And this is the last time before Jesus came that, Israel, that Jerusalem was completely sacked until 70 AD when the Romans did it. But this conquest, even though it was brutal, it was also brief. Because not long after, Antiochus Epiphanes was defeated. And his destruction was very swift and it was very complete. And that's a picture of what's going to happen on that last great battle of Armageddon. Now, I want you to turn in chapter 17. You may not need to turn. Just look across the page. Chapter 19, excuse me. Look at verse 17. Chapter 19, 17 and following. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. With a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both slave and free, both great and small. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in his presence had done signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who had worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. That is the first uh, clear, uh, it's not the first reference, but the first clear depiction of this battle of Armageddon. You remember that in the book of Revelation, we have the same uh, story of God's judgment and victory over sin and over evil, over the enemy, uh, told seven times in seven increasing cycles. And so, Chapter 19 is not telling us something that happens, and after that, chapter 20, the, uh, the, 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 the millennium, and after the millennium, another great battle separate from what's going on in chapter 19. Chapter 20 goes back, and it encompasses the entire gospel age, and it retells the story of Armageddon. Just think about this. At the end of chapter 19, Satan, the, 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 the Antichrist, the beast, all of the armies assembled there are slaughtered. So who is Satan when he's unleashed to deceive? Who can he deceive to lead against the Lord? Now you can say, well, a thousand years later. If all of the enemies of God are slaughtered in chapter 19, there are none for him to deceive in chapter 20. It's, go back, it's going back and retelling the same story once again. So here we have Satan gathering these battle, these nations for battle against the church. And it says that the enemies of God surround the people of God and their numbers like sands of the sea. It looks hopeless for God's people. It says they camp around the, uh, the, the saints and the beloved city. Now, this reference to a beloved city, I, I don't think he, James or John is referring to a specific geographical location. One of the reasons is because so much of, of the book of Revelation is symbolic. Another reason is because I don't think all the Christians in the world are going to be gathered in one place. I could be wrong. That's okay if I am. I won't be too upset. Uh, but it, it seems to be more. Uh, but, but the key is not one nation going up against all the other nations. It's all of the nations going up against the people of God, the church. So there's no mention in this text of Jerusalem. 
there's a new Jerusalem coming down for the new heaven and the new earth. That's not what this is talking about. There's also no uh, mention, by the way, of the United States of America. There are those who think Armageddon is going to be other nations against us. I don't want to burst your bubble here. I love our country. But I think when the time comes and Satan deceives the nations, every nation, including our own, will be gathered against the church. Now, if you don't like that, I'm sorry. But our citizenship, first and foremost, is in heaven. And if we're looking at what's going on today, we can see how easily deceived our nation is. And Satan's still bound to a great extent. So we should not expect those who have not come to Christ. Those whom Romans 8 says the mindset of the flesh doesn't submit to God's law. It is hostile to God's law. It's not able to submit to his law. Uh, God's law seems utterly foolish. His rule and reign seems utterly uh, repugnant to the natural man. Not only the Hindu and the Muslim and the communist and the atheist, but the American as well. So, here we have this great, this, this great battle, these nations going up against the church, and then Jesus comes in power and wins a very swift and very sudden victory. Fire from heaven devours his enemies. The devil is thrown into this lake of fire and burning sulfur once and for all, never again to deceive or to tempt or to torment or afflict the people of God again. The, feast and the, the beast and the false prophet are there with him in this lake of fire and burning sulfur. They're not annihilated. They're, the Bible does not teach annihilationism. When people die, uh, they, they're, they're, uh, those who are outside of Christ, we find them here. They are in the sea and death and Hades, the grave, but they'll come to life again and stand before the judgment seat of God and then been, be cast into the fire as well. And there's eternal torment. Please hear this. God takes seriously the sins of men against him. He takes seriously the defense, defiance and rebellion that Satan carries out against him. And when he returns, when Jesus comes back, his conquest will be swift, it, it will be certain, it will be devastating. So remember I've said many times, the major theme in the book of Revelation is the triumph of the Lord Jesus Christ. Satan's defeated. He's permanently, ultimately defeated and cast out. And the saints of God triumph and we glory in Jesus Christ. Now, throughout church history, we've heard people making end-time predictions. Jesus warned in the Gospels that there would be false Christs appearing that would deceive even the elect if it were possible. And there are those, I call them prophecy peddlers, constantly trying to, uh, trying to connect these current events with end time uh, or, or, or symbols and signs in the book of Revelation. I think it's harmful. When World War II broke out, people thought, oh, this must be Armageddon. Hitler must be the Antichrist. Well, that didn't happen, did it? Uh, when Osama bin Laden uh, inspired madmen to take down the World Trade Center, people said, maybe this is Armageddon, and Osama bin Laden is the Antichrist. Well, that didn't happen. Uh, and there are these, these prophecy peddlers constantly trying to make that connection. I wouldn't be surprised with current news of people saying, Vladimir Putin is talking about the possibility of using nuclear weapons, and people saying, that could be Armageddon, maybe Putin is the Antichrist. Let's be very clear. There are some details in Revelation that are clear, but much is left to be a mystery. And we need to be humble 
And we need to, uh, we need to uh, be very careful about connecting current events with the prophecies of the book of Revelation. All right? The, as in the Old Testament prophecy, it was clear enough to validate Jesus' birth and know when it really actually happened, that he was going to be born in Jerusalem. But it was not clear enough for them to anticipate the time or the details. And in the same way, there's going to be a lot of surprises for premillennialists, amillennialists, postmill. There's going to be surprises for all of us. Jesus is going to come like a thief in the night. But there's going to be glory and joy for his people. So we need to exercise some restraint. Because when Jesus returns, every eye will see, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess. It will be unmistakable. Uh, let, me, let me say this again. If you're setting your eyes and looking at that date, looking at that, that, that great battle, if you're setting your eyes on our nation or any nation as being virtuous, as being on the right side in the battle of Armageddon, you are setting your sights on too small a kingdom. The book of Revelation is about the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. He will establish his kingdom, his church, that all will recognize. There's no indication that America or any other country is going to be fighting on the right side in the battle of Armageddon. There's no indication that any nation will be battling on the right side in that great battle. The nations will gather against the church. That doesn't mean we should be unpatriotic. I love my country, and I will love it as long as I live here, and I'm thankful for it. But we need to recognize we are citizens of a greater kingdom. But as a nation, when our nation experiences a time of war and turmoil, it can be very unsettling. But as believers in Jesus Christ, we're always at war with the world. And yet, we can have peace that passes all understanding, even when the battle's fiercest. So, this is this great battle that Jesus is going to win in an instant. But now let's turn to the the glorious setting of the great white throne judgment in the opening of the books. The scene is in heaven, verse 11. I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Thrones in Revelation, unless it says... The, the, where Satan's throne is, or the, Satan, or the throne of the beast, every mention of the throne that has anything to do with the Lord is always in heaven, never on the earth. And so the scene here is in heaven. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. This great throne, it's great emphasizing the authority of God, the omniscience of God, seeing all, the, the infinite greatness, the power to carry out judgment. And it's called a white throne, emphasizing the purity of God's holiness, that his judgments are absolutely just. There's no disputing God's judgments. John refers to him seated on the throne. Who is it seated on the throne? It's God, but specifically it's the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 5, moreover I tell you the Father judges no man, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son as they honor the Father. In Acts 17, Paul says, God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. Well, how do we know who that is? Well, he tells us. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. So we know Scripture in numerous places teaches that Jesus will sit on that throne. Jesus will open the books. Jesus will survey the divine record. He will execute judgment 
and justice. So here's the Lord Jesus sitting on the throne, and I want you to see who else is present on the solemn occasion. John says, I saw the dead, both small and great, standing before him. Verse 13, the sea gave up their dead. Death and Hades gave up the dead. And the usage of the dead that John, the way John uses this, seems to indicate we're talking about unbelievers. Those who've died in Christ are in heaven. They're on thrones ruling and reigning, waiting for that resurrection where they'll receive new glorious bodies. The first resurrection, they're already alive in heaven with Christ. It seems like the dead uh, outside of Christ, we're not real sure what their condition is. They're in Hades or whatever that means. But they're going to rise and they're going to stand alive in the presence of God. And it's interesting because it still calls them the dead, even as they stand in judgment. There's no mention in this text of the saints standing before the judgment, the great white throne judgment. Now, I'm going to show you in a minute that we are going to give account, and we will be there, but, but recognize in this text it says, the dead will stand before him, both small and great, the kings of the earth, the lowliest peasants, those who are famous and those who are totally unknown, those the world considers important and those who live in relative obscurity. Everyone will be present for the opening of the books before the great white throne. And so verse 12, the books are open. Judgment begins. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Now, there are actually two books, because if you keep reading, it says, and then I saw another book. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what's written in the books, according to what they had done. So the contents of the books, plural, is what we've done, whether good or bad. Every action, every motive, every thought, every public act of kindness, and every private or secret act of malice or disobedience. Everything that you have done in the light and every secret thing you've done in the dark, everything you have done in the body, whether good or bad, every motive, every thought, is there in the books. Children, you realize that everything you do, mom and dad may not see it, but God sees it, and it's in the books. My mom used to tell me, you can be sure your sins will find you out. I didn't know for a long time that was actually in the book of Numbers. It's a, it's a Bible verse. It's true. Our sins will find us out. They're there in the books. And on that day, the, the books will be opened, and what we thought we could hide, it's there for all to see. Every lie, every secret sin, every bad attitude, everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account, we read in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13. Who is it included in the books? Well, again, there are the books, plural, and there is the book, which is the book of life. And my question to you is, which book are you in? Which book contains your name in your life? I believe that everyone who has ever lived is in the books. But if your name is in the Lamb's Book of Life, whatever's in the books is either erased or irrelevant. Because that's not, we're judged in Christ, not in ourselves. But the purpose of the books, men are judged according to what's there. It's, a, it's an absolutely reliable testimony against them. Romans 10 verse, or excuse me, 14 verse 10, we will all stand before God's judgment seat. That's written to Christians. 
2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what's due him for the things done while on the body, whether good or bad. Again, written to believers. Hebrews chapter 9.27, just as it is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes judgment. So, I think the, the, the clear teaching of Scripture is we're going to be there. But I'm not sure whether what we have done is going to be read in the books or not. I'm not real sure about that, but I know if our name is in the Lamb's book of life, that's what's going to predominate. That's going to carry the day. Jesus will be our advocate, and we need not fear anything. Now, there's some who, 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 who look at this, and, and, and they're not too worried. They say, well, you know, uh, there's some good things on my record. There's some bad things on my record, but I think I've got more good things than bad things because I'm basically a pretty good person. Uh, Romans 3 says the whole world will be held accountable to God. Verse 20 of Romans 3 says, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. If we're trying to get into heaven based on what's written in the books, the Bible says we're in a whole lot of trouble. Now, this morning, Pastor Mark talked about the five solos. You remember that? Sola Scriptura, that Scripture alone is our authority. But then the other four solas deal with salvation. Sola gratia, salvation is by grace alone, not works. Sola fide, salvation is received by faith alone. Sola Christus, salvation is in Christ alone. And sola deo gloria, salvation is to the glory of God alone. And if we're relying on our works, we're looking at the wrong books, and we'll find ourselves sorely disappointed on that day because the reality is sin is not just what you do it's what you are by nature at the very core of our being we are sinners and these books contain an infallible irrefutable testimony not only to our sinful actions but even the sinful motivations that permeate the very best works we might present and so whatever good might be recorded in those books is going to be completely insufficient to gain us entrance into heaven. These books are only sufficient to condemn us into the lake of fire. But verse 12 tells us there's another book. It's the book of life. And this book is actually mentioned several times in Revelation. In chapter 3, it says, those who overcome, I'll never erase his name from the book of life. In chapter 13 and in chapter 17, it speaks of the dwellers of the earth who have received the mark of the beast, and it says their names are not written in the book of life or the book of life of a lamb who was slain. In chapter 21, verse 27, in the new heaven and the new earth, it says, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the lamb's book of life. So what's contained in this book of life? What's the record of the merit of Jesus Christ? It's Christ's righteousness that saves. He alone kept the law. He fully fulfilled the Ten Commandments that Pastor Mark has been preaching through. He fully obeyed his Father in all things. You think about the challenge, honor your Father. And the Lord Jesus comes and says, I always do that which pleases my Father, knowing his Father has assigned him to die on the cross for our sins, not his own. The most difficult obedience imaginable. And he willingly undertook to obey his father. 
He fulfilled the holy demands of the law in his obedience and in his sacrificial death as our substitute. There is nothing of our works written in the Lamb's book of life, only our names. Think about that. Nothing of your works are written in the Lamb's book of life. That would be like a stain that would need to be erased. Only your name. That's all that's needed there. When Paul speaks of our relationship as Christians, it says we are in Christ. So when we stand before the throne of God's judgment, we stand in the righteousness of Christ. Having your name written in the Lamb's book of life means you are in Christ. And being in Christ delivers us from the judgment we rightly deserve. So having our names written in the Lamb's book of life is a tremendous comfort. Blessed are all those whose names are written in the book of life. But verse 15 contains a very solemn warning. If anyone's name was not found written in the, in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, again, I believe there's a lot of symbolism in the book of Revelation. I don't believe Jesus is opening up a book and going, let me see now, whose name is here and who's not? Are you here? From all eternity, God ordained who his people would be. In fact, when Jesus went to the cross, not only were our names written in his book of life as we sang in Arise, My Soul, Arise, my name is written on his hands. So this idea of opening the books in the book, uh, whether it's a literal standing before the bar of God's justice or whether it's a powerful symbol to show how solemn this event will be and the distinction between the record of our sins or the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the message we must take from this text. This lake of fire is eternal condemnation. It is torment. It's unending conscious misery. It's absolute isolation from God and from anything that's good. And this idea, well, you know, all my friends are going to be in hell, so I may as well go there and be with them. You'll be isolated from them as well. There is no fellowship in hell. There's no comfort of any kind. Misery loves company but it won't have any in the lake of fire and burning sulfur. And that's the destiny of all those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. Well, what should you do? Well, you need to be sure that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And you can say, well, how can I be sure? How can I know? Well, come to Jesus. Put your heart, your faith, your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Confess to him the very best you have to offer to God would be thoroughly insufficient. It would condemn you to hell. You need a righteous substitute. One, to be righteous in your place. That's Jesus. Gives us his righteousness. One, to pay the penalty of sin, which you've committed in your place. That's Jesus, our substitute. And so, we need to look to the Lord Jesus. We need to repent of our sins. We need to place our hope and our faith entirely in him. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. And John, turn, turn with me to John 6, if you would. I, I, I have a particular affinity for this text, because this is the text the Lord used to convince me that Jesus would indeed receive me. I thought he was willing to save anybody but me. I really did. And a friend took me to John chapter 6, and the Lord caused faith to rise up in my heart. Look at verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. The question was asked, Jamie, are you coming to Jesus? And I said, I'm trying. And 
The second question is, can Jesus lie? Suddenly, it wasn't about my ability to trust or come or anything else. It was his faithfulness to his promise. And the Lord saved me right there. Amazing experience. But keep reading. I have come down not from, or excuse me, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day, the day we're reading about in Revelation 20. He'll lose not one. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. There's hope. There's confidence for those who look and trust in Jesus. Hear me. If your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, you will come to Jesus. No questions about it. But you can't discern, an unbeliever can't figure out, is my name in the book or not? That's not the question. The command is, come to Jesus. And if you come to Jesus and put your, na- put your faith and trust in him, that will be compelling evidence that your name is indeed written in the Lamb's book of life. But the invitation is always there. Come, all who are weary, heavy laden, I will give you rest. The command is there. Repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ that you may be saved. And the promise is that Jesus will not lose a single person who was given to him by his Father. He will raise every single one of us up on that last day. Judgment day holds no fear for the Christian. That book of life is this as a reminder of the particular love that God has for each person. There will be no surprises on judgment day. God won't say, wow, <laughs> interesting to see you here. Our name has been written in that book from all eternity. Scripture speaks of that day as a day of joy and, rejo- and rejoicing. Paul calls it the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He comes to judge. But it holds no terror for us, the children of God, because on that day, we will experience the redemption of our bodies. We will see Jesus as he is, and we will become like him. We will be transformed into his glorious image. We will hear that commendation, well done, good and faithful servant. And just like in the parable of the sheep and the goats, when the Lord commends that faithful servant, and he's like, when did I do those things? Me? Are you kidding? Uh, when did I care for you and, and, and do all those things for you? We will not be coming there going, <laughs> I got this all together because I've been a great. No, Jesus is a great Savior. That's the point. And when Jesus went to the cross and they pierced his hands and his feet and his side, not only did his hands have pierce marks in them, he had our names written on them. And so when we appear before that great white throne. We will not appear before an angry judge. We will appear before the, a gracious redeemer. Jesus will not be there for us to dispense God's wrath. He'll be there to dole out the rewards that he promised, but that are rewards of grace. Now, we could consider a lot of questions about judgment day. There are all kinds of things that we don't know. How will this take place? When will it take place? That's not our concern. We do not want to be prophecy peddlers. Our concern is to prepare for when it does take place, whenever that might be. There's the books, and there's the book. Which book are you in? We're all in the first set, I'm convinced. But whatever it says about the Christian in that set is completely dismissed when your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. You're safe 
in the arms of Jesus. Now, Christian, hear me. If you're focusing your attention on what may be written about you in that first set of books, even though you're trusting in Christ, you are never going to have peace. You cannot have peace before the Lord if your focus is on your own works because it will never be enough. We can look at the difference Jesus has made in our lives and say there is something going on in me that is humanly inexplicable. There's no way I would love what I love, that I would hate the things I hate in the world, that I would persevere through the situations in which God has given me the grace to persevere were it not for the Holy Spirit at work in me. I can see evidences of his grace, but it's not complete yet. And if we're looking at the incompletion, and if we're looking simply at the books, we're never, ever going to walk in joy. We sang this morning this wonderful hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. And the final verse is, O Lord, haste the day when the faith, faith shall be sight, when the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Why would he write, even so? Because on that day, we have nothing to fear. We'll hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, there are those who imagine, they deceive themselves that it is well with their soul now, but they're not in Christ. They're resting in their own self-deceived sense of righteousness. But on that day, there will be no deception. There will be no confusion. There will be no mistakes. The whole truth will come out. And the only way to be sure that on that day that will be well with your soul is to have dealings with God today. In just a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table. And oftentimes, I ask you to meditate on the great love. By this, uh, God manifests His love that Christ died for us. He gave his life. He shed his blood for us. But I want you to focus your attention as we observe the Lord's table tonight on the justice of God, the bread that represents the body of Jesus that apart from being pierced, we could not be forgiven. The blood apart from being shed, there is no cleansing of sin apart from the shedding of blood. We could not be forgiven. Meditate on the justice of God, the inflexible justice of God. And recognize that justice demanded nothing less than the Lord Jesus giving his life for our sins. I want to close. We're going to sing this hymn at the end, but I want to close reading the words to this great hymn, Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted. Can we, can we throw that up on the screen? Stricken, smitten, and afflicted. See him dying on the tree. Tis the Christ by man rejected. Yes, my soul, tis he, tis he. Tis the long-expected prophet, David's son, yet David's Lord. By his son, God now has spoken. Tis the true and faithful word. Tell me, you who hear his groaning, was there ever grief like his? Was there ever uh, friends through fear their, his cause disowning, foes insulting his distress? Many hands were raised to wound him. None would interpose to save. But the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor who think the evil great, here may view its nature rightly. Here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's anointed, Son of man and Son of God. Let me ask the men who are going to serve to come forward at this time.